we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. Jill is away and we miss her, but she will be back soon. Also, by now, all of you know we're going on tour next month. We're going to go to Portland, Oregon on May 12th, New York City on May 19th, and D.C. on May 21st. You can go to the show notes for the link or go to politicon.com slash tour to get your tickets. They're almost gone, so please hurry. We cannot wait to meet you live. Okay, let's get on to the show where, as always, it was hard to pick just three topics. We were we were debating it right down to the wire this week, but we chose some pretty good ones. So today we'll be discussing the Discord classified leaker case, ethics at the Supreme Court, and the E. Jean Carroll trial. And lastly, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get to that, you guys, this is a big dress up weekend. You know, it's this weekend is the White House Correspondents Dinner where people here in D.C. get all dressed up. And in New York, it's going to be the Met Gala where everybody 
dresses up with Anna Wintour. And I just, you know, thinking about these big gala events now that we are, I guess the pandemic is over um, and we're gathering again. Do you guys like dressing up? I mean, I'm a little excited to to put on a gown again for the first time since, you know, the before times uh, and go to the correspondence dinner. Do you guys like dressing up or do you think that the pandemic taught us that, you know, we should do a more casual thing? What, what do you think, Barb? I have two modes of dress. I have the business suit and I have the I'm cleaning out my garage today. <laughs> <laughs> so when I have to go to something that's really fancy, I kind of cringe a little. Oh. But I am with you that if you're going to go to something like that, um, you should dress appropriately. And so yeah. if it's a fancy event, you know, like a we- if I'm going to a wedding, I my my goal is not to stand out because I, I've underdressed for the event. You know, I don't want anybody saying I can't believe she wore that. I just <laughs> I just want to go. I want to have nice conversations with people. I want to have a good time, and I want my my dress, whatever it is, to be a non-issue, to be unnoticed. I'm the opposite of people who dress to make a statement. I am dressing to make no statement at all. So I, I agree that getting dressed up is important in certain circumstances for fancy events, and I would do it. But my preference is to dress in one of those two modes and to attend the kind of events where one of those two modes is appropriate. <laughs> Joyce, what about you? What, for for what event is cleaning out your garage wear appropriate? Because I'm like really well, curious. Cleaning out your garage, of course. <laughs> Can you come down here and do mine? Um, so look, I, I'm afraid Barb is going to silently criticize me as I say this, Never but she imagine. knows because we were together right before this happened that I was a victim of circumstance. I broke my foot last spring right before the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and I ended up going to the dinner in a really lovely ball gown. However, um, I had to wear a pair of shoes, or, or to be precise, one shoe that leveled out the boot that was on my broken foot. And the only pair of shoes that I had that was a, a good fit was a pair of Golden Goose tennis shoes. And they're really fun. They're sparkly, right? They have like silver crystals on them. They're, they're great shoes. And so I ended up wearing that with my ball gown to the correspondence dinner. And I reflected by the end of the night how comfortable I was, even with my broken foot. Yeah. Um, and I thought about earlier years. You know, there was one year, and Kim, I bet you remember this, where MSNBC handed out um, flip-flops, just cheap flip-flops, <laughs> when you walked in the door to their after party because yeah. everybody's feet hurt so much at that point in time. And you just ended up carrying your heels, you know, wherever you went with the flip-flops on. I think that my going forward approach is going to be dressing fancy. I do love to dress up, um, but wearing the right footwear to stay comfortable all the time. Oh, oh. so are you judging funny. me, Barb? I, I never am. choice. No, <laughs> I'm judging you. A little, no, I'm not really judging you. Everybody has to do what's right for them. But to me, like there was a, a couple months ago, there was a gala um, th- that I attended where the theme was that everybody wore sneakers with their gowns and tuxes. Mm-hmm. And I wore stilettos. I was just like, no, either you do the thing or you don't. <laughs> like, I'm not going to show up in a gown and some sneakers. That's just that's just antithetical to me. Joyce, if your foot is broken, I can totally see you had a reason to do that. But I say just buy shoes, fancy shoes that are comfortable and fit your feet. I mean, I the 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 shoes that I plan on wearing to the White House Correspondents' Dinner are some of my favorite. There are these gold um, Versace shoes. I actually wore them to my wedding reception, and I wore them all night, and I never took them off once, and my feet felt fine. Uh, they're five-inch stiletto heels. I can't wait to get back in them. They're some of my favorite shoes, and I'm glad 
have an occasion to wear them. Uh, so I, I don't know. I'm a dress up girl. I'm a fashion designer. Maybe that's it. I always I grew up watching my mom get dressed up to go out to dinner and just loving, you know, when she put on her heels. And so to me, that's what it's all about. So everybody has their own thing. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. While we await a ruling on whether Jack Texiera, the Massachusetts Air National Guardman accused of leaking highly classified military documents, will remain in custody or be released pending trial, we have learned a lot in court filings for that detention hearing. And I have a lot of questions for my sisters, the veteran prosecutors, about all of this. Joyce, there is a lot to unpack here, but let's break down the basics first. Remind us of what Texiera is charged with and tell us what the standard is that the judge will apply in making the ruling in terms of pretrial detention. Sure. So it's interesting. We don't know exactly what the final charges will look like. He was arrested on a complaint on April 13 charged with two counts that both relate to the unauthorized handling of classified materials. He had access to sensitive documents on a computer. Um, One of the counts in the complaint is a traditional Espionage Act count, and then one is an 18 U.S.C. 1924 removal of classified documents counts. But this is a complaint. Prosecutors have not been to the grand jury yet, And so these charges are really just placeholders. They're a way to arrest the defendant and to keep him in custody because obviously people were really concerned about what was going on here and the imminent risk of damage. Um, So we don't know yet what charges the prosecutors will seek in front of the grand jury. They've suggested in these pleadings, though, that he could be looking up to 25 years uh, in custody, which suggests that they will be very serious charges possibly including obstruction of justice. And so now the judge will have to decide whether to detain him pretrial. And essentially, the law asks the judge to decide whether he's a flight risk or a danger to the community. If the government can prove either one of those, then the judge will keep him in custody. So, Barb, what stood out to you most about the information contained in the filings in this pretrial detention hearing? Well, DOJ filed this motion, so of course it had to include some facts and some evidence uh, as the basis for its argument that he's uh, a danger to the community, that he is a risk of flight. Um, And in that, they revealed some things about his background that I found really appalling for someone who had a top secret security clearance. Uh, When you get one of these clearances, they do a background investigation of you. I mean, Joyce and I had top secret clearances, and they came and knocked on the doors of our neighbors. They they checked into everything in our records. I was just talking to 
um, a man who was the principal of my children's school at the time, elementary school. And he told me how the FBI had come to meet with him and sat down with him for two hours to talk about me, you know, back back when we first started that in the Obama administration. And the idea that this young man who's 21 years old got a uh, top secret security clearance when uh, it disclosed that when he was in high school as a sophomore, um, in 2018, he made alarming comments about the use of Molotov cocktails and other weapons. Uh, he trawled the internet for information about mass shootings. He engaged in regular discussions about violence and murder on social media. Um, the uh, th- That information was flagged by the police when he applied to get uh, a firearms identification card. Um, you know, all of these things are so disturbing. It really makes me wonder, are they really being as rigorous as they should be to give out these top secret clearances? He's 21 years old. So it hasn't been that long since he was in high school and these things have happened. It made me wonder, are they so desperate to get IT people, right? He's an IT specialist um, in the military that they're willing to overlook things that really should be precluding people from getting a top secret clearance. Yeah, you know, Barbara, I share that concern. I mean, back back when I was on dating apps, um, it seemed that the only people that I met were either attorney here in DC were either attorneys or uh contractors it contractors for either the pentagon (laughs) Mm -hmm. or the state department who had security clearance Mm -hmm. and i and some of some of these people i was like really they gave you a security clearance. i mean i I, (laughs) it made me wonder if there was some reform that needed to happen based on who had them but joyce what about you what stood out uh to you about this? yeah you know exactly the same thing that barb is talking about every agency is responsible for doing its own background clearances And, you know, we've all seen this information about how difficult it is for the military to recruit in this day and age. But this suggests to me not just that there needs to be reform, and I expect that there will be after this case, in how they vet folks for security clearances, especially top secret security clearances. It also maybe suggests that the military should be a little bit more picky about who they let in. I mean, I understand that there are supply and demand issues, But nonetheless, this is a guy who should have never been in the United States military based on what we're learning. Yeah. So, Barb, uh, prosecutors uh, claim that Texiera may have far more classified documents than is presently known. Let's take a minute to talk about the national security implications of that. Explain to us what the danger of that is. And is there any way to contain that threat? Yeah, so this is one of the things that um, the intelligence community undertakes every time there is a leak or a spill of classified information, and that is to do a damage assessment. So one is just finding out the whole universe of documents that he uh, compromised and then finding out where he put them. He put them on the Internet. You know, that means anybody in that group might have then uh, shared them further. So I would imagine a big part of what they're doing is talking to him to find out what he'll tell them, looking at all of his accounts to see what he had access to, and talking to everybody in that Discord group that he was a part of, and trying to find out whether that group posted them further. We know one of them did, which is how this case came to the attention of the government, But um, and then figuring out what's out there. So, for example, the things that are most often concerns in these 
uh, disclosures are sources and methods. You'll hear that that phrase used a lot. Sources are people who provide information. Sometimes these are foreign nationals living in foreign countries. Sometimes they are our own spies in foreign countries. And if it turns out that, that their names and identities have been exposed based on something that got disclosed, their lives could be in danger. So it might be bringing people home who are positioned overseas or taking them out of a situation where their lives could be in danger. The other is methods, which is methods of collection. There are all kinds of secret ways that the government intercepts and collects classified information. There are you know, devices and there are um, locations and uh, people who are collecting information that is unknown to our foreign adversaries. And so if there is some method that has been disclosed, we might have to watch out and make sure somebody isn't doing what's called a, a false flag operation. That is deliberately putting uh, false information in one of those streams so that we bite and we think that thing is true when in fact it's not. You know, talking about uh, plans for Russian invasion in Ukraine, uh, we're going to go uh, eastward when in fact they're going westward, you know, to try to fake us out. So you have to figure out which streams have been compromised so that we no longer use those. So it's a it's a big undertaking and it can be really disastrous for uh, the intelligence community and our military capabilities if these things have been compromised. But it's a very urgent task that I'm sure people are hustling around uh, to to figure out right now. And Joyce, uh, some of the comments that Takshira is alleged to have made that Barb outlined um, some of the violent uh, comments that he's made. He's also made uh, allegedly made racist comments. How might that factor in this case? Why, why, Why might that information be pertinent? Yeah. So, you know, it certainly goes to the detention question that we were talking about earlier, right? That'll have an impact on how the judge um, evaluates his dangerousness to the community. But it really goes beyond that to this um, entire question of how does this person intend to use this information that came into his possession? There are so many unanswered questions here. I think we'll get a little bit more information when we see the complaint. But this is a troubling sort of a situation when you think about it in the context of what we learned during January 6th, where there were a lot of members, people who had military connections, who were at least loosely affiliated with some of the domestic terror groups. And so we have to look at this person as an individual, but also think about what this means and whether the military's review, you'll remember we actually talked about that. The, the military had a 30-day stand down so that they could evaluate what was going on in their ranks. And I think the question is, was that successful or do they need to reevaluate? Is this just a one-off case or does it have larger implications? Yeah, and we saw a lot of discussion around uh, in the past about people in the military and and recruitment of folks who possess some really um, abhorrent views uh, and how that was a problem. Um, So I want to ask both of you this one thing, you know, we're talking about classified documents here. What, if any, clues can we glean from whatever happens in this case to how a a potential charge against, say, Donald Trump for his alleged uh, intentional retention of classified documents might go? Are there any tea leaves here or am I getting way ahead of my skis? What do you guys think? Well, I'll say one thing, but then I want Joyce to make a point that she made uh, with us earlier because I think it's a really great insight. Um, But the one thing I'll say is I think it demonstrates that um, 
the government, the intelligence community, and the Department of Justice take these cases very seriously. This is not some, you know, bookkeeping error, overdue library book kind of a situation. Um, Top secret classified information is, by definition, information the disclosure of which would cause exceptionally grave harm to the national security of the United States. It is why they're engaging in that frantic uh, investigation to assess the damage from this spill and it is why they are aggressively prosecuting Jack Teixeira. He's not getting a pass here. And I think in the same way, those who minimize what Donald Trump did um, are, are failing to understand the gravity of this kind of offense. But Joyce, you had an interesting um, analysis of how this case uh, puts in context the, the Trump charges uh, relative to Biden and Pence that I thought was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it really is sort of educational to see this case at this moment in time, because something that we know is that when DOJ goes ahead and prosecutes Espionage Act cases, they're not looking for people who inadvertently held on to classified material. They're looking for people who had some sort of harmful intent or who carelessly handled the information in a way that compromised security. And so here, the thing that sticks out in some of these pleadings is the fact that Teixeira was actually trying to obstruct the investigation. He wasn't just on his own trying to, I think, mangle his comms so that they couldn't be tracked. He was reaching out to other people on Discord and asking them not to talk to law enforcement when they were approached. That's obstruction of justice. That's one of those plus factors that merits prosecution. And that's precisely what we have in Donald Trump's situation is this active effort to obstruct justice. You know, I think it's also worth noticing, and this is is maybe on a less serious level, but in, in this case with the airman, we have a situation where he really, if you believe some of the reporting, just wanted to brag about how important he was to his friends. Oh, look, here's all of this classified material I have. And that sounds so much like the former president, right, who loved to show this. I mean, there's some reporting, right, biographers, newsmen, random guests at Mar-a-Lago. Hey, come on into my office and look at my classified documents. Um, It's funny. It's pathetic. But it also, Barb, as you say, I mean, this material is, you know, not not for nothing kind of stuff. This is material, the disclosure of which could do grave damage to national security. So if Texera gets a prosecution, I think that that will help people understand why Trump gets prosecuted. Yeah, I think that's such a great insight, Joyce. I'm really glad we're going to get a chance to talk about this next topic because it's something that's been weighing on me heavily. I, you know, I'm an appellate lawyer by trade. I have always had enormous respect for the Supreme Court. It's where we send our most difficult to resolve disputes for authentic voices, people with integrity to resolve issues. And it would be an understatement to say um, that we're all being forced to question the Supreme Court standing these past few weeks. So, Kim, let's start with sort of the basics of where we are, because this week the court took steps to repair its damaged reputation, at least I think in in the minds of nine justices, maybe they thought this would work. They released a statement. They all signed it. They stressed their commitment to ethics principles. 
Talk about what was in that statement. And I'm so sad that our listeners cannot see the look on your face right now as, as I'm saying all of <laughs> Can that. Can you because, hear her eyes rolling? I mean, oh, my God, them. that look was priceless. Well, I, I did a post on Instagram. You know, the, the dog sitting in the, ha- the house that's on fire drinking coffee and saying this. Yes. Is I said, that's John G. Roberts right now. Like, that is the chief yes. justice. Like, yes. everything is fine here. I don't know what you're talking about. So, yes, the chief justice released in response to a request to appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee, this statement, this joint restatement about ethics at the Supreme Court. I want to be absolutely clear. This statement creates no new standard. It breaks no new ground. All it basically says is, look, this is what we've been doing and that we promised to do. And we all signed it. So we agree that we're going to keep on doing what we're doing. So it was basically the chief justice saying, this is fine, as he sips his coffee in the burning building, in my opinion. So basically what it restates is are some things that we've talked about here before. The Supreme Court is not bound by any uh, ethical code of conduct the way that lower court justices are bound, but they have agreed to consult. The, the wording they use is so important because they don't agree to be bound by this code of con- conduct. <laughs> they agreed to consult it as they decide what they do when it comes to recusing from cases or, you know, filing these financial statements, which they actually are required to do. Like other judges do, they have to disclose their income uh, or other forms of uh, gifts, other things that they get of financial value. They do do that. Uh, But beyond that, when it comes to most things like recusing from a case, uh, deciding what account amounts to a gift that they disclose. It's really up to each individual justice to make that determination. So by and large, the Supreme Court is not bound by anything other than their word. And so I guess what this statement was supposed to do was restate that, hey, we double pinky swear that we are doing everything on the ethical up and up. And I just think that the chief justice is not reading the room. Public confidence in the court is plummeting. People do not trust the court. They see, especially after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, after an, any number of justices that were appointed who are now in the court's majority said, Roe v. Wade is the law of the land in their confirmation hearings. Uh, they had no intention in adhering to it. That and not to mention justice is being taken on extraordinary vacation junkets around the country. Justice is speaking before groups that have interests before the U.S. Supreme Court, all kinds of ethical norms being broken in real time right in front of our eyes. And the chief justice says, trust us. I'm not sure how we can. Yeah, I think that's dead on the money. It's sort of the convergence of those two events for me, right? You've got a court that's reversing long-standing precedent. It takes a lot of confidence in the court's integrity to accept that. And right at the same time that they're doing that, you've got Justice Thomas, who it's now documented, right, is hanging out with rich guys who have interests in litigation. And the Chief Justice's response is to muster all nine of the justices so that they can all say, but, but really, you should trust us no matter what Justice Thomas was doing even though Justice Gorsuch had property that had been on the market for years that suddenly sold nine days after he was confirmed to the bench. I mean, it just defies belief that they expect us to take them on faith at this point 
because it's not like their legal conduct. And I, when I say legal conduct, I mean their decisions in cases have been fully above board. Barb, so something else happens on the same timeline where this letter gets released. The Chief Justice declines the Senate Judiciary Committee's invitation to testify in front of them. I mean, he declines. He sends them this letter signed by the nine instead. And confidence in the court continues to erode. So we've, we've discussed this before. It's not a theoretical problem, right? It can become, in the wrong conditions, a real problem. Do you think that the Chief Justice should have just failed to appear here? No. Uh, so, you know, it, the, the, the letter just cracked me up. It's uh, from the Senate Judiciary Committee. And, you know, it isn't sort of like, hey, if you feel like it, stop by. It's like, we have some concerns. We'd like you to come testify. And he's like, um, you know, you know what? Thanks. I'm good. Nope. I just, um, I think I'm not going to do that. Nope. Um, as you know. I don't want to uh, go out on a date with you, Senate Judiciary Committee. I mean, it felt like a teenage girl, right? It, it really did. And he even said things like, um, you know, the only time really chief justices have appeared before uh, Congress was on mundane things. And I guess since this is important, I better not come. I mean, really? I mean, it, I thought it was, um, as you said, a failure to read the room. And I think it, it had the opposite effect of, you know, instilling confidence that it's unnecessary. It makes it seem more necessary that he's refusing to come in and talk. I can imagine one justification might be, if he discussed this with anyone, what he might say, if I go in there and I testify, it will become a circus and there will be people trying to play gotcha and, you know, trying to trick me and make me look bad and it will further undermine public confidence in the court. That is certainly a risk. But uh, if you accept the premise that the court is already suffering from a uh, crisis of public confidence, then you can't miss this opportunity to go in and reassure the public that things are under control. And if they're not under control, you should welcome that. I just finished reading, I don't know if either of you read, um, the book Steve Loddick wrote on the shadow docket. It's an excellent book. I recommend it to anybody who's interested in the Supreme Court. And one of the points he makes in it that I think is so interesting is that um, this court, more than any other, has treated the public not as uh, you know the people they serve, but as a nuisance or a threat to be kept at arm's length. You know, we don't want cameras in the courtroom. We, you know, we, we want the doors to be closed. You're not coming in the main doors. We're putting up a big fence. Um, and although they have legitimate security concerns, they need to remember that they serve the people and they're not doing that. And the other point he makes, he, there's a lot of good history in the book, is that there has been congressional involvement in the way the court conducts its business throughout our history. It's actually only recently, since 1988, that there has been this real hands-off perspective that the court needs to be left alone to maintain its independence. I mean, they set their salaries, they appropriate their funds, um, they've decided over the years how many justices there should be. Nine's not any magical number in the Constitution. That's set by Congress. And so if we have this concern about ethical rules, then Congress certainly has the authority. Y yes, it is a separate and co-equal branch of government. That that's how checks and balances work. They oversee what's going on in the executive branch, and they should also oversee, you know, not the merits of the decisions, but things like ethical rules of the Supreme Court justices. So I thought this letter was really either ill-advised or reflects his fear. You know, I really agree with your point that Roberts missed the moment here, right? He could have gone over, there could have been a hearing, he could have offered explanations, he could have begun the process of restoring confidence in the courts. 
and not to beat a dead horse, but you guys know me and I do love to do that on occasion for rhetorical purposes. I mean, who enforces the Supreme Court's decisions, Barb? What, how does that work in an environment where people are unhappy with them? Well, the court really relies on the public trust to just obey and comply with its orders. We respect the court. We respect its authority. Its orders have the force of law. And so we comply with it. You know, we talked about this uh, last week, I think, that shocking phrase in Justice Alito's dissent in the Mifepristone case about how he had no confidence that the Biden administration was going to comply with one of its orders. Like, really? Uh, you know, it's kind of unheard of. But I suppose if we see this continued erosion in public trust in the courts and its legitimacy, then that's the end of the game, right? At some point, people say, we don't trust you. And just because you said so, no, we're not doing it. And, you know, then chaos reigns. We can't have that. You know, I confess I was on a plane flying back home when that opinion dropped, and I actually had like an audible response when I got to that point in Alito's opinion. It was a little bit embarrassing because I was like sitting there surrounded by really nice people, and I think <laughs> I sort of just threw one hand up in the air and made an exasperated noise. I love it. You did like that spit take they do in comedy shows. <laughs> I sort of did, right? You're drinking your little, your little cup of water and... I was knitting, actually, and I made a mistake in my knitting, which is even oh, worse than that. But, yes. but that said, in some ways it felt to me, and maybe this is an overread, the notion that Joe Biden, the ultimate institutionalist, would ever permit, even with a decision he thought was wrong, right, outright, flagrant ignorance, um, failure to comply with the Supreme Court's order. That is not in this president's genetic makeup. It is not in the genetic makeup of, I'm going to say, 99.9% of the people who work at the Justice Department. We believe in the rule of law. And it almost felt to me like Alito was maybe projecting a little bit how, you know, he thought he might react in this sort of a situation. It just, it was so incredibly distasteful. Kim, I, I'm afraid I sort of cut you off there. Did you have a point on that too? Yeah, just to Barb's earlier point, saying that, you know, on chaos and anarchy, it, 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 that's not an understatement. I mean, it, don't trust us. Ask now retired Justice Stephen Breyer, who wrote a whole book about the importance of the Supreme Court. I think I, I criticized that book a little bit because his thought is, at the time anyway, I think he wrote the book before January 6th, to be fair, uh, is to say, you know, after Bush v. Gore, that was a very politically contentious case. But Americans accepted the results. They accepted what the Supreme Court did, even if they didn't agree with it, because that's how the rule of law works. I'm not sure we're still in that place, given what happened on January 6th. So if the Supreme Court does not have the public trust in what they do, it really honestly could undermine democracy. I, I really can't say enough how, how detrimental that would be. Right. I mean, in this moment where we need the court's integrity and we need the public's confidence to be high because they will likely end up deciding the 2024 election one way or the other, they seem to be squandering the public's confidence in them right when they should be rebuilding it. And, and I mean, I'm really interested in both of your views on this one, because what really does happen if the public loses confidence? I don't want to overstate it, but you've both said that it's a serious risk. I mean, we're not in a full-blown condition of anarchy. I don't really expect for us to get there. But what happens if the court doesn't reverse this trend, Barb? 
I hate to imagine, but, um, you know, I think it would be invite lawlessness if people feel like the court is just one more political branch and is not really deciding cases based on fact and law, then, you know, what what do we need with them? And I worry that people will resort to uh, vi- vigilante violence to get their way. You know, if the court says uh, you can do this, you can't do that, that people will take the law into their own hands. You know, the way we've seen with some of these militia groups trying to uh, physically cause the election outcome that they want, trying to physically kidnap the governor of Michigan because they didn't like her shutdown orders. I mean, I think that's the kind of thing that happens when we don't have courts that enjoy the respect and legitimacy of the people they're supposed to serve. And I think the more we see these justices as political actors, as opposed to independent, um, unbiased jurists, uh, carrying out their interpretation of the law in the Constitution, the more problematic that is, too, especially given that they have lifetime tenure. Then they become like demagogues in some sort of way, ruling in, in a way that was never intended in under uh, the American governmental system. I mean, I just think it's so, so dangerous in that the Chief Justice of the United States, who had this reputation, right, of caring so much about the institution of the court and being so careful uh, in his stewardship of it, could respond to the Senate in that way. Listen, nobody expected him to actually testify. Let's be clear here. Nobody expected him to testify before the Judiciary Committee. But by putting out the statement and, and having all the signatures of everyone on that, as if to say, you know, well, it's not just me. Everybody agrees with me. We're fine. Um, it's just so it's short-sighted that that was really gobsmacking. So look, I think the analysis here is really helpful. It's a depressing landscape But it does help us see a couple of different issues in focus, right? We see the problem with any institution losing public confidence, especially the court. We see really what the impact can be if we don't get a grip on our domestic terror slash white supremacist militia problem. And it also helps us appreciate the import of some of the voting rights issues that are percolating. Today, the North Carolina Supreme Court reversed course, right? and has now said that North Carolina's just egregiously politically gerrymandered voting maps can go into effect. And the only thing that has changed since the North Carolina Supreme Court said, no, this is a vicious political gerrymander that's illegal under the North Carolina Constitution, the only thing that's changed is the composition of that court. So it's a real attack on the rule of law. Those issues all sort of come together, and and it's depressing to think about. But Kim... You shared with Barb and with me earlier today a Supreme Court ethics bill that that you told us now has no chance of passing, but that it could be a roadmap for the future. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like and whether there's some hope here? I think there could be some long-term hope. So there is a bill, it is bipartisan uh, in the Senate, um, that would require the Supreme Court to adopt an official code of conduct. And it would have to be done within a year. Uh, Those rules would have to be published on their website. Um, It would designate an independent official to handle violations of those rules. So it wouldn't be left to the court itself or the individual justices themselves to police themselves uh, and publish an annual report about any complaints made with respect to that. It would just bring some a, a real accountability to the court in a way that just doesn't exist now. Now, without question, a law like this would face some constitutional challenges because it's never existed before. But I think at the very least, um, it's worth pursuing 
uh, if for no other reason to hold the Supreme Court to the same standards as other federal judges here. They don't have term limits. They they have life tenure and there needs to be some sort of check. Chief Justice John Roberts raised concern about separation of powers in his letter saying that that is a, an important principle. And it is. But you know what else is? Checks and balances. And the Supreme Court increasingly is having fewer and fewer in checks. They really honestly don't seem to have any checks at all. Uh, and I think it's time for that to change. Well, trial began this week in E. Jean Carroll's civil lawsuit against Donald Trump for rape and defamation. Joyce, let me start with you. They had some opening statements uh, earlier this week, and um, Trump has a lawyer named Joe Takapina. He looks something like uh, right out of Central Casting in you know some mob movie, and he gave an opening statement that CNN described as fiery. Do you think that that, you know, sort of scorched earth strategy is an effective strategy in a case like this? You know, if by fiery you mean misogynistic and (laughs) offensive, um, well, then maybe. And look, it wouldn't be a sisters-in-law episode if I didn't just flag this. As I've texted back and forth with friends, um, Joe Takapina really takes on some interesting tones when Siri gets into autocorrect mode. You guys remember during the Burnovich case, the voting rights case, when Burnovich kept coming out as Burnovich on my phone. <laughs> Takapina isn't quite that PG rated, but I have really um, enjoyed that. Oh my I did God. not enjoy. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I did not enjoy. I'm sorry. I've like now put Kim into heart I was heart taking failure. a sip of tea um, and I, I like choked on it. Did you spit take? Did you spit take? I knew it. Oh, my God. Spit take episode. All right. Pull it together, y'all. Um, so it is worth reiterating that we are not watching this trial because the federal courts refuse to permit cameras in the courtroom, something that I think is short-sighted and silly and doesn't serve the ends of American justice. But we are lucky that there are journalists in the courtroom and that they are live tweeting Um, Much of what goes on from an overflow courtroom. And of course, there are other journalists who are writing after the fact. And so it's hard to gauge the jury's reaction to these arguments, for one thing. But Takapina really did just rely on a bunch of old tropes um, in his opening statement. It is called an opening statement because lawyers are not permitted to argue the evidence in opening statement. They just tell the jury what they expect the evidence will look like. And Takapina told this jury... You know, you will be asked to believe in facts that are just unbelievable in this case. And I know he meant when he said that, that the jury would be asked to believe E. Jean Carroll's testimony. But when he said you'll be asked to believe something unbelievable, I thought, damn straight, and that'll be your client's version of events here. Um, It seemed to me that this is going to really just be a matchup where Trump's overbearing, heavy-handed manner is repeated by his lawyers in the courtroom. And I don't think that that will be effective, particularly in a case of this nature. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, he carried on what he promised in his opening um, once the trial began. So, you know, the first witness was uh, E. Jean Carroll herself. 
And um, during the direct exam of of E. Jean Carroll, so this is with her own lawyer asking her questions, it's actually Trump starts going after her again in the same kinds of things he said that was the basis of the defamation suit. He is not even in the courtroom for this trial, can't bother to show up, but he posted disparaging things about E. Jean Carroll on social media as she's on the stand testifying. Um, Kim, can he get away with that? And do you think it will affect the trial? Oh my goodness, he just cannot help himself. Could you imagine having him as a client? I really, I just, I oh, just. What a nightmare. I just can't. Yeah, probably not get away with that. If I were E. Jean Carroll's <laughs> attorney, I would be keeping a running tab of everything that he posted publicly, and that would become a new exhibit uh, that I would ask to be introduced in this trial, much <laughs> the same way that they introduced the Access Hollywood tape, uh, in basically, which, which is basically him admitting uh, to generally doing what he is accused of in this case. This is evidence that I think could be used just to show a pattern of practice uh, of just how he thinks about, how he talks about what he says uh, about this person. And if he is restating the same alleged defamatory things that he's being sued for, it shows that he's being intentional about it. It, it, it shows that he's unrepentant about it. Um, and it can do nothing but harm his case. Uh, I, I just, I mean, he can't help himself. Yeah, you know, it reminded me of, do you remember when um, Marie, was it Marie Yovanovitch, was that her name? The ambassador mm-hmm. to, uh, yep. Ukraine. to Ukraine. Remember, she, remember she came in and testified and he did the same thing to her, that wherever she went, it was a disaster. And yep. um, I think Adam Schiff called it witness intimidation in real time, which yep. is very interesting. And he was kind of- You could almost think that Trump doesn't like women. <laughs> I think he said, you know, it's a scam. And, you know, I know uh, the, the defense was, you know, from, from Trump's lawyer, well, the jury is admonished not to read any press, so therefore it's all harmless. And, and I think the judge said, you better control your client. But as you said, you know, good luck with that. Um, well, I want to ask you both about the cross-examination of E. Jean Carroll, because I thought this was um, quite interesting. Um, we heard a lot of, as Joy said, as we heard in the opening statement of the old tropes uh, that re-victimize survivors of sexual assault, you know, failure to report immediately, failure to scream, this is all about making money. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, if you can get just one or two jurors to buy into that theory, uh, maybe you can hang the jury. So what do you think of that strategy in 2023? I mean, I know we think it's um, disdainful to say those yeah. things out loud, but do you think it can be effective? So I, I, I want to hear what Joyce has to say, but two two points come to mind in that, yes, it, it is really um, discouraging that we're still seeing this happen in real time. But on the one hand, this is a um, civil trial and not a criminal one. So it could, in a criminal case, pick off that one juror, or those two jurors, or, or get a, a bit of reasonable doubt uh, put into a criminal case. This is a civil case. So the standard is by a preponderance of the evidence. So I just think generally speaking, uh, the the chances that this will have the same sort of payoff um, are much lower. Somebody can think, oh, maybe she could have done more, but also think that by the preponderance of the evidence, she has made her case. So I just think the standard here being different Mm -hmm. uh, makes this a lot different. Secondly, as somebody who has uh, participated in civil trials, when the lawyer is being 
what seems like um, a jerk to a witness in a case that never helps you that never ever helps you so i don't really know what he is thinking there is a way to question a witness to try to questioning a witness to try to uh uh you know to um raise questions about her testimony is totally fair game that's the job of an attorney um there's a way to do that without looking like a jerk or looking like you're re-victimizing her. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't seem to have the ability to do that. So I just think it's bad lawyering. Yeah, what do you think, Joyce? I, I think I share that view. Yeah, I, I do share that view. And I should say that my view is probably colored by the fact um, that E. Jean Carroll and I are, are real-life friends. She's a knitter. Um, and when my knitting group moved online during the pandemic, she was part of that. So, you know, I should acknowledge that maybe I'm biased in her favor, I would like to be able to say that as a society, we have moved past the days where people didn't trust women and that the Me Too movement had, you know, engendered permanent change where now everybody believed women when they came forward with these sorts of allegations because it's painful. And E. Jean Carroll's case demonstrates that, right? She comes forward. She loses her job at Elle magazine. They say that it's not because of what she said um, about Trump, but the timeline sort of suggests that it probably is. Um, and, and she pays a big price. She's subjected, if you um, saw any of the reports of her testimony, to a lot of online abuse. People threaten her. She's called ugly. She's called old. The president of the United States used the bully pulpit of the presidency to condemn her. You know, I, I mean, this is something that no woman would voluntarily inflict upon themselves unless they viewed it as important and as principled. And I suspect that her cross-examination will impact this jury. I mean, this is a jury in New York City. This is a jury, I think, that during Vordire, we saw that many of them um, seemed to reflect consistent views of of their ability to have heard much of this evidence, but to be willing to set it aside to decide a case. So I think this jury will render a careful, deliberate verdict based on the evidence. I worry that in many parts of the country that might not be the case and that these sort of tropes would still play very well um, and that women wouldn't get a fair hearing. It's an area where we have a lot of work left to do. Yeah, and I, I think that um, Trump's lawyer, Joe Takapina, became his own Exhibit A, right? When he, he asked, why didn't you report this when it happened? Because I didn't want to get re-victimized the way you're re-victimizing me right now. Uh, yeah. She gave a more diplomatic answer than that. But I, I thought that just watching that play out, there was a report that said that um, two of the male jurors who had previously been very engaged were just staring down at their laps during that. And I hope it's because they were so ashamed of him. Um, and not because they were believing what they were hearing. Um, well, let's hope this case uh, comes out maybe next week. We'll be able to talk about it, and let's hope it can be a teachable moment for, for America. Well, now we are at our favorite part of the show, which is listener questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using the hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye out on your Twitter feed. 
We'll answer as many of your questions as we can get to. But first, uh, our first question of this week comes from Brian in Seattle, Washington, who asks, what is the process of jury selection for grand juries? Who is authorized to say yes or no for prospective jurors? Are there any guardrails to prevent an unscrupulous or partisan prosecutor from stacking the grand jury? Those are a lot of questions, but Barb, uh, can you can you give an answer here? Yes, I have actually had the experience of selecting a grand jury. Joyce, did you ever do that in your time at the U.S. Attorney's Office? I did. It was always a fun thing to do. Yeah, I actually did. Typically, our criminal chief does it, but there was a time when our criminal chief was not available, so I did it. And it takes a full day. But um, the guardrails are the judge. So Brian is right that there is not an adversarial party there. You know, ordinarily, you've got prosecutors and defense attorneys to strike people that they think might not be fair to their client. And so it doesn't have that component. But of course, you're not picking a grand jury for any particular case, typically. I guess maybe the Fonnie Willis special grand jury had that feature. But you're picking a grand jury for cases that will come before it at this moment unknown. Frankly, the hardest thing is finding people who can show up and be there for uh, six months for a regular grand jury or 18 months for a special grand jury, which is a huge time commitment. In our, our district, it was either two weeks every other week or once a week every week, depending on which kind of grand jury you were on. And that's a big commitment. And so often it was really just listening to the challenges that people might have. You know, I'm an hourly employee. I care for my elderly mother. I have young children at home. You know, there are a lot of things that would cause people to say, I just don't think I can commit to that. And so people would often be excused for those reasons. But otherwise, the questions were really looking more for challenge for cause, not so much, you know, knocking off people for peremptory reasons. But, you know, if a person had a relative who was a police officer and didn't think they could be fair in deciding cases, people who worked uh, for the court, those kinds of issues would be the biggest issues. And, and then otherwise, uh, the idea was, you know, we should keep on whatever is a cross-section of the public. So I, I think that regardless of um, the absence of someone to speak for the defense, the judge is there to play a proactive role to ensure that those interests are represented. Our next question comes from, and I hope I'm saying this right, at Smother Einstein, who asks, would it be possible to strike down gerrymandering elsewhere as was done in the Alaska Supreme Court last week? Joyce, do you have an answer? Yeah, so this Alaska situation is interesting and it didn't get a lot of attention, so I'm glad we've got this question. Little bit of a rehash of the Supreme Court law on gerrymandering. The Supreme Court says that it will not review what's called political gerrymanders, efforts by state legislative majorities to draw district lines for elections along political lines, you know, sort of like the situation in Alabama, where you happen to have all of the Democratic voters squished into one district in the state. The court won't look at it if it's purely political. They will only look at it if it's a racial gerrymander. But there's an exception. Some state constitutions say that you can't have either political or racial gerrymanders. And states that explicitly prohibit political gerrymanders, in those states, you can still have challenges. And that's what happened in Alaska. Alaskans challenged some districts that had been drawn and said, this is a political gerrymander. It violates the Alaska Constitution. And so long as the Alaska court approves that and says it is a political gerrymander, then you can throw those district lines out. 
That's similar to the North Carolina situation that we referenced earlier. North Carolina also has a constitutional provision that prohibits political gerrymanders. But now the North Carolina court has said, well, in this situation, this isn't a political gerrymander, which means the answer to the question is, it is largely up to two things. One, what does your state constitution look like? And two, what does your state Supreme Court say? Do they look at certain maps and say that they're a political gerrymander or not? And of course, that can ultimately get appealed to the United States Supreme Court. That's what had happened with the North Carolina maps. We've discussed this independent state legislature theory case that is pending in the United States Supreme Court and whose outcome is now uncertain because North Carolina reopened that case But in essence, if you've got the right law in your state, you can still attack a political gerrymander. And finally, we have a question from Wendy who asks, if abortion has been outlawed in state X, how can mifepristone still be legal? What differentiates the two methods of terminating a pregnancy, making one illegal and the other legal? This is a good question because I think um, in everything that we're talking about, this case involving the challenge to mifepristone, uh, it can be confusing. So what the case involves is a challenge to the FDA approval of mifepristone. The FDA is the federal body that approves drugs to be used nationwide. That approval process is very different from what states are doing on a state-by-state level in terms of legalization of abortion. So two things can be true at the same time. Mifepristone can be an FDA-approved drug that is available, uh, where available, and a state can outlaw abortion entirely, which would include medical abortion, making the use of mifepristone illegal in that state. A state cannot revoke the FDA approval of that drug. That's up to the federal government. That's a federalism issue. But they can ban abortion in any form that it wants. So there are uh, states that use of mifepristone is dramatically reduced beyond what the FDA approved or outlawed altogether. But those are two different legal processes that are happening simultaneously. So I hope that makes a little bit more sense. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce fans, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. We can't wait for Jill to get back. She'll be back soon. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using Hashtag Sisters in Law. And don't forget that Hashtag Sisters in Law are going on the road. Come and join us as we record the podcast live on stage where we would discuss the legal topics of the day and answer your questions live. We're starting off in Portland, Oregon on May 12th, then going to New York City on May 19th and Washington, D.C. on May 21st. There are still some tickets available, but not many. So you really need to hurry and go to Politicon.com slash tour to get your tickets today because we can't wait to meet you. Please support this week's sponsors. HelloFresh, Moink, Article, Fast Growing Trees, and Noon. You can find their links in our show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. And to keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. And please give us a five-star review because it helps others find our show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. need to post more on your fashion one. I found I'm going that a to. I'm going to read. I like it. Yeah, I'm going to re I should post what I'm doing right now is knitting up is mending a, a hole in the dress I'm wearing tomorrow night because it's I'm 
Look look at you. We got to talk about that. She's sewing (laughs) as we record. And this is like a fancy gown. Oh, my gosh. We got to talk about that. Seriously, we should. But, Kim, do you do the creative mending thing or do you do standard mending? I have friends who are really into creative mending with embroidery. No. No. I don't do creative mending. I try. Like, I made one wedding dress for a friend that had lace overlay on it. Mm-hmm. And the amount of work, my God, I don't know why. I, I don't know why. I, I would never do that again. I just do regular, regular mending. <laughs> the only reason I'm doing this by hand is because it's sequins and putting that in a machine is. Yeah, you got to do it by hand. Wow. Definitely. Yeah. Although I did sew this on a machine very carefully, but that Wait, also you took made a your dress for WHCD? I, I, the dress I'm wearing is a dress that I made like five years ago that I've worn before. <laughs> wow. That's I'm amazing. going very last minute, but yes, I made this sequin. I designed and made this sequin if dress. If I made a dress, I would wear show. it like 10 times a year. Forget it. <laughs> yeah, I'd wear, I'd wear it everywhere I go. 